You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I've been increasingly aware of these moments of flashes of, of anger that come from our predominantly liberal satirists, where it seems like they abandon humor altogether and they're just they're just mad. Hello, welcome to Zocon Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So something that has been on my mind a lot writing my book and trying to think about American politics right now is the differences in how media on the left and the right have evolved. They are not the same. And I don't just mean journalistically not the same. I mean that the audiences for them are not the same and don't exhibit the same behavior. So on the left, you have people who trust a pretty wide number of news sources. I mean, dozens and dozens of sources in the center and on the left and even a couple on the right, like liberals will say they trust the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. And on the right, conservatives, people who identify as conservatives will say, I only really trust Fox News and a couple of others. And then again, if you look um, about how people collect, right, what is their most trusted news source? Fox News is a huge winner. It's like in 2016 among Trump voters, I think 40 some percent said Fox News was their most trusted news source. And on the left, there was nothing like it. I think CNN was in the lead, but it was like 15-ish percent. You just don't have the same behavior in the two. And that's given conservative media, conservative talk radio, a different kind of power over the Republican Party than you have, than any media outlet has over the Democratic Party, and certainly than any liberal media outlet has over the Democratic Party. There's just no, there's no comparison between the influence Fox News has and the influence MSNBC has. And the question here is why? Something that I've been surprised by doing my research over the past year is that for all the talk of asymmetric polarization, political scientists and others, they don't really have an explanation of it. They have stories about it. They have decisions people made. Newt Gingrich did this and Fox News did that. But the why of it, why did it work when someone on the right did this? Why did that get rewarded? Why did the moderate not get rewarded? Why did he or she lose their position? Why did it not go the same on the left? They're not there. Um, it's in this context that I came across the work of Donna Young. She is an associate professor of communication at the University of Delaware. She has this fascinating book that's not quite out yet. It's coming out in a couple of months called Irony and Outrage. But she studies uh, different media preferences and aesthetics on the left and the right. And she began studying it. And we talk a bit about this. She began studying it in terms of how the media was different. And then began getting into, well, why is it different? Um, and took a path that I think you sort of have to at least consider. 
looking into the psychology of the two audiences that leads them to want different kinds of products. And I'll say, and and we we, we go through this a bit, this is a little bit of a tricky kind of thing to talk about. Um, talking about political psychology does, and I think should, make people uncomfortable. Um, first, you know, the data is only so good. Uh, it's, you know, we're dealing with a lot of survey literature, but also increasingly uh, some experimental um, data, which we talk about in here. But also, you want to be very careful not to pathologize. You want to be very careful not to say like, oh, like people who don't think like me, there's something wrong with their brains, which very much is not what this literature says. Uh, the other difficulty with literature is often it is framed in ways that make it sound like it is casting judgment when it is simply sort of showing differences. So trying to think about this and trying to find ways to talk about it, I think is pretty important because as much as it is difficult to talk about political psychology and the differences in the political psychologies of the coalitions, it's obvious that psychology matters. It's often, it's obvious that the ways in which people are different and the ways in which they experience the world differently matter for all kinds of things from where they live to what they believe to who they hang out with. So the idea that it wouldn't matter in politics is crazy. And the idea then that we can't talk about it is going to make it hard to understand what's going on. So I appreciate uh, Dana being here and thinking about this in such a, a thoughtful and, and open-minded way. Um, as always, you can email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Danny Young. Danny Young, welcome to the podcast. Ezra Klein, thanks for having me on. Can I tell you what I completely did not expect about your book, even having spoken to you before? What? How much of it would be about the ending of Garden State? <laughs> I didn't. I, I have to say, as somebody who had my Garden State period, I did not see that coming. Isn't everything, doesn't everything come back to Garden State? <laughs> really? I, hope I feel like there's been a very unfair turn on that movie where a lot of people who like had this moment with it at a certain point look back at themselves at that moment and are embarrassed by themselves of that era and have turned on the movie in a stranger. But it's a good it's a it's a good movie. It'll make you feel things. But if you know, you're why, of a certain age at a certain moment. Why turn on your authentic self? Like that was I you know. at that moment. That was a good person. And the shins, how can you how can you turn on them? I whatever you want to say about the movie, I will defend the soundtrack to that movie to the death. Um, I still listen to it all the time. It is an excellent soundtrack. It uh, is. It, and yeah, the shins are great. Um, but you you talk about the that movie in terms of ellipses and need for cognitive closure. So I'm going to put a pin in that because I don't think we're there in the, the conversation yet. But I do want to come back to it because I think it's a it's a funny and, and interesting example. Um, let me begin a bit with the the big question of your work, which is what is the difference between the aesthetics of right wing and left wing media? One Easy answer is that the the preferred aesthetics of the right are fully cooked and the preferred aesthetics of the left are incomplete. And if I had to sum it up, that's how I'd sum it up. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah. So fully cooked, I mean, you don't actually have to do any work to determine what the intended meaning is. You don't have to do work to identify what the point is. It tells you what it's trying to tell you. Whereas with um, the aesthetics that are preferred on the left, it never tells you what it's trying to tell you. You decide what it's trying to tell you. So it is, by definition, incomplete. And this helped me start to think about why it is that this is that these are the preferred aesthetics on the left and the right in terms of the underlying psychological traits that we tend to see among conservatives and liberals. So first, I want you to convince me this is true. So so give me some sure. examples of this complete versus incomplete. Let, let, let's start with examples sure. before we get to the research. So what, what brought me to this question in the first place was that I've, I've actually studied the effects of exposure to late night comedy 
since 1999. So I've studied the effects of exposure to late night jokes on attitudes, opinions, knowledge, political efficacy, political discussion. And I ran out of dependent variables, so I had to ask a different question. Um, So what became clear as I was studying late night jokes was that when you look at political satire, what makes political satire distinct, what makes all humor distinct from traditional discourse is that it never tells you what it's trying to tell you. It's the audience that brings the meaning to bear on the text. So we can think about it in terms of incongruity, that satire often, either through irony or through juxtapositions, there's a gap in there, and the gap is what's solved by the audience. And usually in satire, that gap is solved by the addition of some kind of argument that those people, that the audience brings to bear on the text. So so it's not done. It's not fully cooked, right? And this is why irony can cause such trouble because the meaning of irony is not in the ironic text itself. So you can look at situations like the Archie Bunker show, right, where Archie Bunker was supposed to be, as intended by Norman Lear, Archie was supposed to be the target of the mockery. But the audience gets to decide who's the target of the joke. The audience gets to decide what the point of that show is. But let me let me push back on this in sure. using myself as the example rather than using someone else as the example. So I think it's fair to say that more of my audience leans left than leans right. Um, I've been, you know, a, a cable news fill in and has done a lot of work there and, and had a big audience there. And I've done podcasting and Vox and Washington Post. And, and I would say that if you look at my work, and I think this is true for a lot of the work of my colleagues, it really does try to say what it's saying, right? Like there's something at its, I don't want to say at its worst, but I think one of the criticisms of the kind of explanatory journalism that I do, but also that uh, Rachel Maddow might do or Chris Hayes, um, is it can be didactic that, you know, it's so kind of beating you over the head with what it is and these long reads and here's 14 charts that it, um, it, it actually kind of bores the audience in its uh, need to try to tie up every single loose ends and put everything in one super hyper clear conceptual framework. Uh, so, am I like do I do I fit in your fit in your well, schema? That's interesting. Well, I y- you could, but I also would say that yes, these styles, especially okay. So let's think about Maddow for a second, especially some of the deep dives that she's done over the last year, right? Because they're salient in my mind. Um, these are didactic in the sense that she is telling you what she's telling you, but she's tying together oodles and oodles of things in this really long line coming up with this sort of deductively argued piece to make a point. But she's not sort of vehemently like fire and brimstone telling you what you need to think about it or do about it. That's that I see as the difference. And in fact, so it's interesting that you bring up these these types of hosts because antithetical to satire, as I've contextualized it, is the genre of outrage, which, as identified and defined by the authors Jeff Berry and Sarah Soberai from Tufts, they define the outrage genre as something that extends across both the left and the right, okay? They define it in terms of the fact there's a solo host who has opinions. They tell you the what they think is going on in the world and where you should focus your attention. But they're careful to say that this is a genre across both sides. However, even when they content analyze these shows, whether it be at the time it was Keith Olbermann, Rachel Maddow, and then it was Bill O'Reilly and Hannity, even within the genre of outrage, the tropes of that genre are less present in liberal outrage shows than conservative outrage shows. So, yes, yes, I feel like liberal opinion talk 
is didactic in the sense that it tells you something clearly and directly and seriously, but it's not necessarily invoking emotion, right? Or a sense of threat in that, like, here's what you need to do about this kind of way. Something I noticed, I've noticed a number of times over the years, and I think probably I've profited from in my career. And so as I say this, let me separate it from the quality of the underlying content, right? Let me just say this is an aesthetic judgment and, you know, you could have good and bad versions of both things. But yes. It has struck me that one of the primary differences between liberal and conservative media is that the emotional transaction with the audience in liberal media, the meta message of a lot of the work is you're smart. Um, you know, if you watch Rachel or, um, you know, I think Chris or, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, I think, a lot of examples of this. I would say that it's true, you know, in some of my work that, you know, if you're sitting here and going through all the charts and graphs, like you're smart, there's research, we talk to the academics. Yeah, but Ezra, question, question. You don't think that that's what the meta message is that they're communicating to their audiences on Fox? No. So what I think they communicate on Fox or Paul Krugman, I think, is another great example of this, where it's like you follow the Nobel Prize winning economist. I think on Fox, if you look at the meta message, it's often that you belong that you are the true Americans. Um, Rush Limbaugh, you know, I'm not saying there's no, like, we have the secret knowledge and there's always been a sort of paranoid dimension of some of the conservative media. But I think that there's a huge, like, patriotism component to Fox. There's a huge, um, you know, you you revere the founding fathers. You are part of this and are a true part of this in a way others are not. That the people who really seem to thrive, at least in some of the the kind of more established mentions of conservative media, I think there's interesting new things happening, are the people who are able to convince you that like together, you and them and the Tea Party, um, you know, you represent the true strain of what America always has been. And the other folks don't. The other folks are, are aliens and invaders and, you know, um, unpatriotic elements uh, weakening the weakening the project from within. So I would agree that there is this sense of belonging, right, that especially conservative outrage, it is not about the information that's conveyed. It's about the experience and the connection and the community that that signifies. I would agree with that. But I would also say that there is a meta message and that I think because perhaps we lean to the left. Perhaps we see the, the definition of smart differently. I think there is a meta message across their content that, like you said, we here in the audience at Fox, we have the insider knowledge. Like, we know that this is the way that the world actually is. I mean, it, I think it would be hard. Well, I to think that's true. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, but so when you think about we're smart, wonky, sure. MSNBC, charts, graphs, data. Yeah. But is that actually something that then is valued or signifies or conveys um, authority to conservatives? Right. So let me, and let I me don't know that's this, true. Yeah. Let me take this amendment because um, I think this is true, right? Maybe smart is a is a overly broad term for what I'm for what I'm getting at aesthetically. Like wonky is a good example of it. There's there are forms of knowing that seem very prized in on the left, and forms of knowing that seem very prized on the right. And so, like, for instance, uh, a thing I've, I've run into quite often is I'll end up in a discussion with, with, with someone on the right and they will, like, like, try to, like, slam on the table as definitive. Well, the founding father said X and or the Constitution was meant to say Y, right? I mean, this is the whether or not you believe in originalism, right, or whether or not you believe the people who say they believe in originalism actually follow it. The idea of originalism is that there should be this profound respect 
for exactly what the the founding fathers intended at the moment of of the of, of creation. And if you want to change it, then you have to go through through the amendment process. Where I think a, a lot of folks on the left, you know, see the Constitution more as a living document. And you know, looking at the the um, data and information about the time, you you apply its values to 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 that era. And so I agree with you that there is a sense of. Um, we know how the world really works. We are connected to timeless truths, right? Some of those are patriotic. Sometimes you get all the way into natural law, but there is something about the the form of knowing, right? Uh, that is that seems to be prized. And again, I want to note: you can do the worst smart in a way that's bullshit, um, and you can do the timeless truths in a way that's very valuable. Like I want to try to keep this part of the aesthetics very value neutral because good and bad work can lurk inside a whole lot of different um, cloaking mechanisms. But uh, but it does seem to me that the audiences have over time prized very different uh, formats uh, and and sort of very different like underlying messages about how they've come to know what they know. I think what you're tapping into, though, even in your referencing of the sort of originalist doctrine is tapping into that fundamental thing that seems to be in the ether in these conversations, which is a sense of openness and ambiguity and a a sort of a fluidity with what is real and what is true, as opposed to a sense of these are fixed entities, they are, these are fixed doctrines, and they are unchanging. And and that's where I feel like that's sort of the meta difference across these two approaches. So there's a lot of survey data in this where people will like ask folks uh, about different different questions meant to elicit their their underlying psychology, but there's also experimental data um, showing differences in how people react to things actually in the world. Could you talk a little bit about some of those experiments? Because I think in some ways they're more telling than the survey literature. Right. So when we look at the survey literature and some of these studies, that these are not studies that I have done myself, but that really greatly informed the the case that I make in the book. When you look at the survey literature, you have this really consistent finding of tolerance for ambiguity and openness across cultures that's higher on the left than the right. But, you know, as as you've alluded to, there it does leave open a question about like what's actually going on there and to what extent are these relationships malleable. And so there have been studies that have tried to understand first to what extent conservatives and liberals are differentially affected by threatening stimuli for example, um, regard like apolitical threatening stimuli and studies that look to manipulate feelings of disgust or uncertainty to see to what extent those stimuli can then trigger subsequent political attitudes and beliefs that would be consistent with this kind of model. And so some of the really interesting work that's come out of the University of Nebraska, for example, looks at measuring arousal among both conservatives and liberals in the face of stimuli like a big scary spider or somebody with a bloody face, okay? And, I mean, these things have nothing to do with politics. And you find higher threat responses among conservatives than liberals, which suggests that in the face of even apolitical stimuli, there's something physiological going on there. So there's another study that I think actually you and I have spoken about before, but that has to do with disgust and and disgust responses around hand washing and and immigrants. I think it's pretty interesting because Donald Trump is so himself on like the far edge of a of a sensitive disgust response. He's a germaphobe. He talks about things in terms of being disgusting. That I, I think it's actually a pretty telling study for this period in politics. 
Right. So there is something called the behavioral immune system, which has been examined in the context of what is called this disgust response, a heightened response that is found consistently among conservatives. And, you know, this has been something that's been examined in survey data. And across the board, you generally find people who are more conservative tend to be more picky about what kinds of foods they eat. They also have um, more active olfactory glands. Is that how you say that? The smell, the smell part of you? Okay, sounds good. Great. I am not that kind of doctor. Okay. Um, And a study that came out by Arrow, Peterson, and Arsenault is probably my favorite in this area because it's totally disgusting. And um, what they did, they, they not only looked at survey data that confirmed this relationship between disgust sensitivity and conservatism, but then they tried to actually manipulate people's disgust by having a stimulus, people read a paragraph about this hospital orderly that had to go clean up vomit. And it was so grotesque. And it was like describing in graphic detail the nature of the vomit. And I won't tell you more. But in one condition, people read that. And then in the, in the second condition, people read that plus the fact that the orderly then was so relieved to go into the nice, clean, sparkling, bleached washroom to be able to wash their hands with antiseptic, antibacterial soap. That manipulation alone then produced an effect. And that effect was fascinating. The effect was not on the liberal respondents at all. Okay, they were not differentially affected by these stimuli. It was among the conservative respondents who, when exposed to the just gross without the corrective, their beliefs, their attitudes became more conservative on issues relating to immigration. So it was it was this priming. They they talk about it as priming your behavioral immune system and your sense of hygiene and disgust and germs. And it, once you once I read it, I was like, put it this way, the Brexit billboards made sense to me. Or or the discourse around the caravan where Donald Correct. Trump is like, oh, these dirty people coming and bringing their disease. Correct. Yeah, it's not. I mean, Trump is like a really wonderful, horrible thing to have to understand these issues in real time. You just like follow his Twitter and you're like, oh, that's that thing. That's there it is. That's disgust sensitivity. I remember when Hillary Clinton went to um, the bathroom. He's like, oh, it's disgusting that she just just left the stage and went to the bathroom. (laughs) Remember when he said about the the American doctors who were like working on Ebola that like, well, it's nice of them that they went, but they're going to have to pay the price. They can't come back. You know, you're like, wait, what? But something I think that is important about this is that we can have a illusion or an optimism that so much of politics is reducible down to questions of fact, right? That if I can just convince you that this will like increase GDP, right? I think we often have this like fake conversation about immigration and wages as if like the the wages of native born white Americans are actually what the immigration restrictionists are concerned about, even as they like try to rip Medicaid out of everybody's hands. And I, I think that one of the the lessons of this is that Part of a large part of our political differences comes from just like experiencing the world literally differently, right? Your preferences about the world being literally different. Your preferences for how homogenous your community are being literally different. Your just level of like intuitive fear about people coming here and coming here in ways where you don't know who they are and you don't know where they've been and you don't know what they're bringing. It just makes it feel different. I think that certainly someone like me, um, 
who is probably very, I actually have taken these tests. I'm extremely high on openness to experience, um, but also have a kind of wonkish, you know, data oriented view of the world. Like I would like to believe that I can just like, like convince you by showing you the good studies that like, you know, the things I believe are, are, are good. But a lot of it isn't about studies. It's not really about trying to create optimum public policy for some kind of data and quantitative outcome. It's actually about right. like how you experience the world is just different. And that matters, right? That's not a not a crazy thing to build a life around. And I have so I have two responses to this. And one is sort of a personal anecdote, and the other is sort of a normative assessment. Because it sounds really bad what you're saying, but um, my point number two is going to make us feel better. So point number one is um, I think about this through the metaphor of the experience of my husband, who is a homicide prosecutor in Camden, New Jersey. And he, you know, when he's dealing with these horrific murder cases and he knows that, like, here, here's the evidence, here are the facts, right? Like, if people just heard the evidence, saw the evidence, heard the facts, heard the testimony... It is clear what happened here. But he also recognizes that more important than any of the preparation that he does in outlining those facts, what's most important is probably the act of jury selection because it's those people's experiences. And some people are going to have a sense of what they think is true regardless, regardless of what you say. So, you know, I feel like... It, in a much in a much larger sense, what we're dealing with when we're talking about political communication, we're talking about trying to convince the public about a particular policy. It is it is akin to that process of a courtroom trial. So the second point is that I think is really important is that if you come away from this, you could be like, we're totally different and we're never going to be the same and we're never going to get each other and we're totally divided and we're we're immutable. First of all, we're not completely immutable. There, there is evidence that life experience and, and interestingly, higher education, liberal arts education does change some of these traits over time. But there's also the fact that the, the existence of these two very different organisms is actually awesome. Right. I don't know about you, Ezra, but I would not want to live in a world that didn't have conservatives in it. I think it would be a disaster. And I, I mean, I'm sure that maybe Fox pundits would disagree, but I, I maybe publicly, but I bet behind closed doors they'd say I wouldn't want a world without liberals in it because guess what? There's no maybe there's no art. Maybe there's no innovation. So w when we start thinking in an empathetic way about how these two different kinds of organisms help serve the greater good of a democratic society, it completely makes sense. And where I think we need to have our radars up is among people who, for purposes of political or financial gain and financial reward, want to exploit those differences to their own ends. That's where I think things go off the rails. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Let me ask you about outrage, because I think the idea that outrage is more concentrated on the right than on the left doesn't sound intuitive to people. The feeling is that the left is this endless outrage machine. Like, have you seen what they're doing over there in wherever? Um, And have you seen what this person said on Twitter? There's a feeling that the left is out there constantly hunting for things to people to be outraged over, right? That that's that is a fundamental enforcement doctrine of woke culture. So what what is the evidence that the right is more outraged or relies more on outrage as a form than the left? That is a great question. In fact, this is something that I've come. It's sort of a bit of a rhetorical stumbling block because I, I think that there is some truth to this. These sort of conversations of outrage culture, outrage culture on the far left with regards to certain issues like social or cultural issues and this sense of indignation. And, you know, if you are on social media, that's palpable. So let me be really clear when I'm talking about outrage as defined as the title of the book and throughout the book, I'm talking explicitly and only about the genre that it has been conceptualized, operationalized and measured um, as a particular kind of political punditry, opinion programming that appears on television or radio that has a solo host at the helm that orients the audience to threats in the environment, that uses hyperbole and slippery slope language to warn them about impending awful things to come from the other side. So that that's it's it's a smaller box than just the the concept more broadly of outrage. So that makes sense to me. So tell me a little bit about how this stuff gets measured. You know, I want to say this for for the audience because I think even having a conversation like this is tricky. It's very easy to activate and we will activate everybody's defense mechanisms uh, along the way here. We're talking in averages. And there's no doubt that there's an overlap between the two coalitions. There's people who consume all the forms of media that we're talking about simultaneously. There are very outraged liberals, they're very kind of cool and calculating conservatives. I mean, you know, these are big these are big yes. tents. Um but Yes. In fact, you got to deal with the issue of the fact that I'm a social scientist and we never deal in deterministic relationships because people are a pain in the ass because they have free will. Ah, people. So the R squares in my models, Ezra, are very small because people do whatever the hell they want all the time. What we're talking about are probabilities. Given one factor is present, it increases the likelihood that these other factors will be present. So there's a lot of room. I'm a free will skeptic, just for the record, so we can put a pin in that. But that said, <laughs> but that said, yes, we're, we're talking about kind of big averages. And so what I'm asking in, in terms of measurement 
is how are those big averages getting measured? How are you what has convinced you that there's a, a probabilistic difference in these forms of, of media construction? Great. So when I am looking at these distinctions on the content side, so there's two levels to this. One is the content side. Like, how do you operationalize and define content? Even at the level of how do you operationalize, define and measure the difference between different kinds of humor? which is something that I've actually done, and it's awful. So how do, you, how do you define the difference between ironic humor versus exaggerated humor? Can you actually create stimuli that make the same exact argument, but do so in a humorous way using different structures of humor? So these are, on the, on the content side, you're talking about that level of analysis of content. On the outcome side, you know, it depends on whether we're looking at things like attitude change, persuasion, you know, psychological batteries and scales. But when we're looking at predictors of consumption and we're looking at these psychological traits, we're usually looking at scales that vary in anywhere from, you know, three measures, if it's something that's quick and on the phone, to the full scales sometimes include 47 different items, just capturing one psychological trait like a need for cognition or a tolerance for ambiguity. So my motivation in this conversation, just like put my cards on the table, is I think a really profound difference between the two coalitions is that the right-wing coalition has clustered around a smaller number of more ideological outlets. That if you if you ask in polls, who do you trust? Conservatives will say they trust Fox News and- And no one else. And yeah, basically no one else, right? A couple other right-wing outlets, but they don't trust anything in the mainstream. And if you ask liberals, there's this Pew poll, and I think it had something like 35 outlets in it. And liberals trusted 26 of them. Um, they trusted everything that was left, everything that was mainstream, and then also the Wall Street Journal. And the economist. And so something is happening in like the soil of liberalism and conservatism that is creating very different media habits. And I think that those very different media habits are cause and consequence of our politics today in, in pretty profound ways. And it's very poorly theorized. I mean, I talk to people about this all the time. And, you know, there are a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives who blame Fox News for what the Republican Party looks like today. But why the Republican party, the Republican base, decided to put so much faith in Fox News is a question that is very hard to get a good answer to. And I feel like your your work sort of begins to point point your way towards that. But but let me ask you that question forthrightly. Why are why do you believe conservatives are so clustered around a smaller number of outlets while liberals have um, a much broader range of, of informational influences? OK, so let me just say straight up that you got to be careful about whether you're talking about trust or consumption, because, yes, that that Pew study does show that conservatives are only trusting of conservative media outlets and they pretty much don't trust any of the mainstream outlets and certainly not the outlets on the left. But I should also note that they still, in spite of that, my, my own research and the work of others has shown that conservatives are still consuming content from across the mainstream. They're more likely to be watching Fox, but they're not completely abandoning those other sources. They still do tune in, I think, probably in part to sort of keep tabs on the enemy, you know, right? To keep tabs on what the other side is doing, which I think is very interesting. But in terms of that trust component, yes, liberals are significantly more likely to trust more diverse ideological sources. For me, this, and it might be an oversimplification, but to me, this speaks to a sense 
of fixed realities and comfort with only fixed realities versus having a comfort with the notion that there are competing realities in the world and we can try to work our way, our messy way through uncertainty by getting distinct pictures of what's going on in the world. And we can be trusting that those are that those stories that are being told are being told in good faith, and we can work through it to understand what's coming out the other side. All right. So I think we actually do need to hit psychology then before we have this conversation. I think we're all, all roads are leading back here. So tell me why in your work you ended up moving from trying to understand left and right media to trying to understand left and right psychology. What what kind of forced you into that into that space as an explanatory path? That is perfect because that is exactly what happened. I was like, I could not understand why at the end of every interview when I talked about here's the effects of late night comedy exposure on attitudes and opinions and behaviors, everyone ended with, why is there no really successful conservative satire? And I gave BS answers that I wasn't satisfied with for years. Answers like, well, in part because conservatives really are, are about the status quo and satire is about critiquing the status quo. And then through eight years of an Obama presidency, that was not satisfying anymore because after eight years of Obama, it was clear that there was a lot of criticism from the right that was punching up at Obama and the administration and the policies that at that point seemed to have been around for a while, and but it wasn't being communicated through humor. So that is what sent me on this deep dive. Like, why is it that all of these arguments are coming from these sort of uh, opinion shows from Rush Limbaugh? At the time, it was Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly. But we're not seeing a really successful iteration of conservative satire. And if there's going to be a time, it's going to be now. And it's not there. Um, so that got me sort of digging into my own understanding of the psychology of humor and how humor is processed in the brain. And I started thinking that there's something fundamentally different in the mode of expression being used on the right versus the left. And perhaps this is attributable to different psychological traits of each of these types of audiences. So that started me on the path. So give me the overview here of the traits you think are relevant. Right. So the the most relevant traits, and I'll tell you why I think they're relevant, um, the most relevant traits that all signs have pointed to are this tolerance for ambiguity trait, which is historically higher among liberals than among conservatives, and a need for cognition trait, which is how much do you sort of enjoy thinking and problem solving, which is also higher on the left than the right. And I'll just say that um, I just want to dissuade people from sort of pathologizing these traits because I think it's very tempting uh, among liberals to say, oh, yes, of course, conservatives, they're so rigid and they're stupid. That's not what these traits are about, <laughs> especially the need for cognition trait. It is not about how smart you are. In fact, conservatives often score quite high on political knowledge scales. It, need for cognition is about how much you enjoy the process of coming to conclusions and working through information. Um, so these are the two that are at the heart of it. And the kinds of questions that really blew my mind when I started answering them was when I started looking at other aesthetic forms. And Ezra, there's a whole literature on aesthetic preferences that clearly links appreciation for all different kinds of abstract art to these same traits that are higher on the left than the right. So 
I have a couple thoughts here because I've been looking at this literature too, and and I want to say that I come to it with discomfort. Um, I think it is like uncomfortable literature to think about and look at. I sort of knew about it out there for a very long time before I really dove into it. And the thing that you know, you talked about um, need for cognition and tolerance for ambiguity. But we should also just mention here, like the big political players here, the ones that get validated again and again, that these are almost kind of, I think of them as subcategories of is like openness to experience and conscientiousness, which are two of the big five psychological traits. And like to a first approximation in basically like every political culture we know of that roughly tracks our own, people higher on openness to experience tend to be more liberal, people lower on it and higher on conscientiousness, which is sort of an appreciation for order and tradition and authority, tend to be more conservative. And this does, like it does have this quality of feeling like you are pathologizing politics. But on the other hand, it's this this work existed long before it ever got applied to politics. It's obvious that people's psychologies do affect the way they live. And so the idea then that you refuse to look at what it means for politics also seems like a kind of um, – actually, it's John Jost who had a, a great riff on this, the, the New York University political psychologist who has written that it would be a very funny form of political correctness to simply refuse to apply psychological literature to politics because you're worried somebody might get offended. And, and here's what's, what's bonkers is that as soon as you start talking about these issues, People get angry. On either side, they get angry. And so I'm like, either no one's going to buy my book or people are going to buy it just to be angry at it. Or maybe, I don't know, because no matter what, I feel like it angers either side because no one likes to be put in a box. Can I criticize a political psychologist for a minute? Here's what I'm angry about. Yeah. I feel like they managed to name a bunch of these things in a sure. way where people on the left just sound better than people on the right. Like Absolutely. The, the really, the really yes. horrible one here the, is the yeah. authoritarianism scale. Oh, which doesn't exist anymore. We don't call it that. We don't use that because that's such a... That, you're right. I mean, when I talk about pathologizing It gets used all the time. It, I, in what circles? I mean, Mar, um, like the Hetherington... Uh, who's his co-author? Um, Mark Hetherington oh, and... yes, I know. I'm yes. so sorry I'm blanking out on this. They talk but they about, have this fixed fluid yes. stuff that yes. works off of the questions that fed into the I mean they've renamed it fixed and fluid, which yes. I think is a much better but name. But they re- fixed and fluid is it much is, it's nicer, much better. But also right? much more fixed correct. Fl- so right? they have yes. I should just say for for yes. for audience, basically they, they what they do, um, there's an old scale called the authoritarianism scale. One of the ways of measuring it is asking people about child rearing, which all of a sudden I'm thinking a lot about. Um, but it asks questions <laughs> you're like, oh, like George Lakoff was right. Exactly. Oh and and ask questions like, you know, is the most important thing that children are obedient. And, and so basically you're you're measuring kind of how um, strict parents are and how much they insist on children sort of listening to them versus children kind of being able to like argue with them and kind of kind of think things through for themselves. Right. Do you want to encourage creativity and curiosity or is it better for them to be disciplined? And, and it turns obedient? out this stuff predicts politics incredibly well across a very large number of cultures. Yes. And there's only four yeah, questions. Wild. They ask four questions. But it's so I just crazy. wish that um, right. these things had been named in a way where you could talk about them more neutrally. Again, fixed and fluid. I act. I actually think um, fixed and fluid is pretty good uh, because that does strike me as more or less what people are talking about. Like open and closed, even that has a little bit more of a value, of value ladenness to it. Yep. So when I start talking about this, and there's actually no suitable terms that I enjoy, so I I sort of make them up as I go. Um, when we talk about tolerance for ambiguity, 
on the left, one of the things that comes through in my book is that when my dad was eat, reading earlier drafts, he kind of gave me pushback on the fact that, you know, you don't make a strong enough case for for the benefits of a of a high need for closure, of a low tolerance for ambiguity. And it really got me thinking, like, if we could reframe that, we could talk really productively about the benefits of people who are really efficient at heuristic judgments. They are very good at making consistent, reliable, gut-level decisions that are consistent over time and that they can operate under pressure to make a reliable, strong decision. Because that's where all of these sort of arrows point, right? So... Uh, and that wow, that's a positive frame. Right. So right? I think one thing I just want to—it's Jonathan Weiler. Jonathan Weiler and Mark Hetherington wrote the book Prius v. Pickup, which is a great kind of look at some of this stuff and its applicability to politics. But 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 to your point, you know, one of the ways to think about this open and closed stuff is it's also it also and we'll talk about this relates a lot to threat and how much do you look at the world around you and see threat um, versus see opportunity, and you would need a. Like evolutionarily, you would want a community to have a certain number of people who look at an outsider and see a threat and look at someone from the outside and see a possible trading partner or a friend. And you would look at you want a mix of that in any society like that seems actually like an important, healthy thing in a neighborhood even. Yeah. So let me tell you a little story here because I think it it fits. So I was at my house the other day. I'd gone grocery shopping. OK. And I had left the front door open because I was putting away all my frozen stuff and I had left my keys in the door, and I'm inside just putting stuff away, and I hear my dog bark, and I don't even flinch because I'm a, you know, liberal, low-threat salience professor. <laughs> my dog's barking. I'm like, be quiet, dog. Keep putting stuff away. Dog barks again. Still don't go and check. Eventually, I go outside to get the last bit of groceries, and there is my neighbor at the foot of his driveway with his phone in hand, looking at my front door. I said, hey, what you doing? You causing trouble over there? And he says, "Uh, no, just uh, trying to get a good look at the guy that just left your door. I said, I'm sorry? He said, yeah, some guy. I don't know if he had been in your house or if he was just at your door, but I caught a glimpse of him at your door, touching the doorknob and going down the front steps and leaving. I'm like, where did he go? And he said, he's, he went down there. He got in that car and he points down the street at a car. This couldn't be any better. You're going to flip when you hear how this ends, right? I'm like, what? Why? So I'm trying to get a picture. I'm trying to see the license plate on this car. Eventually, the car slowly drives towards us, right? All the windows are down. There's four, you know, middle-aged men in the car. And they wave and, they, and they, they're waving something. It's like a flyer out the window. And they say, check your doorknob. It's a reminder to vote. It's election day. Your neighbor's a Republican, so he doesn't get one. That's what he says. And I look at my across the street neighbor and he's cracking up and he says, you would think that they'd train them how to not look like they're breaking into your house when they do that. And I'm thinking, right? I'm like, this is so, so perfect because here my Republican neighbor who this isn't the first time that he's done this. You know, we've had contractors over working on the house. He comes over and says to the contractors, tell me the name, the first and last names of the people who live here so I know that you're supposed to be here. Now, we're not besties. We're not besties with this neighbor. But this neighbor is all about keeping things safe. He has a high threat salience. He's always looking for intruders. Now, you can take this to the extreme and say this is the kind of behavior that can lead to awful tragedies for people of color in various communities. But you can also say that a minimal level of this kind of 
inclination or proclivity can help to monitor a community and keep it safe. So the thing to me like that, that has helped me in understanding the, this literature and its role is that societies are full of different kinds of people for all the reasons and the necessary reasons that, that you're, you're talking about here. And different kinds of people psychologically are going to gravitate towards different things. So, you know, I've talked on, on this podcast before with Will Wilkinson about how cities tend to tend to attract people who are higher in openness to experience and sort of smaller, more rural, more cohesive areas um, keep people who are lower on it and, and higher in conscientiousness. Or there's all kinds of things about um, what kinds of art people appreciate or how much they like to travel or food. And you kind of go through all this and it's obvious, you know. Different people like different things. That's why we have a highly segmented um, consumer goods market. And then it's just true in politics, and I think particularly in political media too, where you're, the, the, the analogy I always use is like it's different soil. And so when you try to put the wrong thing in the soil, it doesn't grow. So it isn't that people haven't tried to do – you were talking about how there's no conservative satire of, of the sort of John Stewart, Stephen Colbert kind – but the the counter conversation about that that has been going on forever among liberals is there's no liberal talk radio. There's no liberal alternative to Rush Limbaugh. And it's not that people didn't try. It's that when you did Air America and like you tried to root that in liberal soil, it like failed to grow. And similarly, there have been a bunch of efforts to make the the conservative John Stewart. But it keeps failing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so something is going on here where it's like things can't grow unless they're uh, among a market that actually wants them. Right. So and I would also argue so chapter 10 in my book actually talks about playing against type and it's a deep dive into the story of Air America, but also the story of the half hour news hour on Fox, which was an effort to recreate the Daily Show, except it was created by Joel Cernow, who created 24. A hilarious, a hilarious um, show. Right. <laughs> All known for its punchlines. Hilarious. So that tanked. And so the argument that I would make is not just that it's a problem of audience. It's not that. When you actually, so I went into these to these programs to try to unpack the internal logic of how they did their business. I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding of how to actually engage productively in the language of that genre, which makes sense because the people who create and who are inclined to create and consume this kind of thing, they also have the psychological traits that are endemic to their side. So, for example, on the Half Hour News Hour, um, some of their uh, humorous juxtapositions literally did not involve incongruity that would invite a semantic leap to reconcile it. Wait, that's a super complicated sentence. I'm so sorry. Okay, put it this way. I it, I was able to actually rewrite some of their jokes so that they would have made sense, and I would have a super successful career as a right-wing comic if I could find an audience. <laughs> but what they did was they would have a punchline, right? So they, they would, I'm sorry, they would have a setup. So one setup was like, if Hillary Clinton is elected president, she swears that she's not going to engage in nepotism or cronyism. And then their punchline was, in fact, if elected, she says that she's going to hire, she's going to have a cabinet full of angry lesbians. Now, explain to me how that at all qualifies as a humorous incongruity that you could then reconcile with some kind of leap. You can't. Wait, ju just, just for the record, is, is, it, is it broadly viewed that all that the definition of a joke is humorous incongruity that you can reconcile? 
Man, academics can ruin anything. I know. Oh, my <laughs> God. I know. I know. It's terrible. It's the formula that's used for most late night monologue jokes, like the punchlines that, you know, the, the, the setup punchline joke usually involves that either a pun or an incongruity that then the audience gets to add to to be like, oh, I get it. It's like riddle solving. So that's that's not the only kind of humor there is. There's humor that's superiority humor. There's humor that's designed as sort of insult based humor. There's scalar humor, which is um, what our president actually does. What use. is scalar humor? Scalar humor is like your mama so fat. That's not insult based humor. That is that oh, okay. is insult based humor. Because so, one thing um, that peop- I've heard a lot of comedians say the thing about Trump is that he's funny. Yes. Like Pete Holmes makes mm-hmm. his point all the time that like he would look at him and be like, oh, that guy's actually funny. Like if you knew him and you didn't hate him, you'd think he was funny. Right. I would also say that the kind of humor that he uses is it's a kind of humor that is insult based and it's scalar. It's all about hyperbole. The audience never has to bring anything to bear on anything that he says to understand it because he straight up says it, but he says it heightened. Right. Like little Marco. Or, you know, low energy Jeb. So these, are they funny? Sure, they're funny because they're heightened, they're hyperbole. But you don't have to, you don't have to work to to be like, what does he mean? And something about this that you're just making me think about is it, people who listen to Rush Limbaugh will often tell you, oh, he's a little too conservative for me, but he's very funny. And he's funny in that way. He's, he's an insult comic. Yeah. Well, remember the Sandra Fluke situation, right? Sandra Fluke, who who was the student who I believe was at Georgetown who had done some kind of congressional testimony on the issue of um, religious schools and whether or not they had to cover their the birth control as part of their health insurance plans. Do you remember this? Yeah, absolutely. So Rush Limbaugh talks a lot about Sandra Fluke, and he says, what she's basically asking us, ladies and gentlemen, is for us to... To basically pay her to have sex, which makes her a slut, right? Like, that's if you're paid to have sex, you're a slut. People thought that was hilarious. People who listen to his show. And that we should get to watch. That's the, that's the other part of that bit he does. Oh. That, you know, if we have to pay for <laughs> it, we should correct. get to watch. We should get to watch. You're right. I forgot. I forgot. Yeah, he's a he's that a charming dude. Super but, important. But that's the thing that, that Limbaugh, I mean, it's just something I want to pull out in this, that there are it's not that like liberals are funny and 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 conservatives are not funny. It's that there are different kinds of humor that are appreciated. And I'm not saying only Rush Limbaugh and, and, and Donald Trump are the kinds that are appreciated on the right, but that the the place where I do think the research is is pretty good, but also just like look around. I would say that the left really likes, if I'm gonna try to frame things neutrally, a condescending irony. And the right tends to gravitate towards like a blunter form of superiority, like insult-based comedy. And that that's what like like John Stewart's form of comedy is like building these like quite complex like structures of media criticism. So at the end, it's like the world is absurd and we're the only ones in on the joke. Yes. And on the right, sort of, you know, the Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly is another person who you you note in the book, they kind of started right around the same time as Stewart on, on Fox News. There's a much more um, like it's a superiority based insult comedy, the pinheads out there. Um, it's kind of funny. Like it's, you know, it's like it's like funny in the way you're like cranky uncle is funny. Um, it's it's there's something. Yeah, to but it. Re- think about this. Think about 
the 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 distinction for me is that there's nothing missing. Yeah. There's it's fully cooked, Ezra. There's nothing missing. It's funny because it's over the top, right? right? It, it's funny because it's so big. It's not funny because there's that moment of, oh, I get it, right? All the pinheads, pinheads out there, like, that's funny because it's insulting. It's not funny because it took me a second and now I'm like, oh, oh, that was a riddle. There was no riddle. So let me then, let me fill in the part for me that has been missing, right? The, the part that when I read this research, I, I don't want to say I can prove this, but I suspect that there's something to it. That, we never prove anything in science, right. <laughs> Ezra. We never remove ourselves from doubt. That, it's a futile exercise. That there is a <laughs> – I think one of the great questions on the right is not why is there a conservative media ecosystem? Because that actually makes sense to me. And I think a lot of the right-wing complaints about mainstream media being stocked with people who are personally liberal and those, and those biases inflecting at least some of the coverage are valid. But why didn't the media they build just turn out better? Right. I think of Tucker Carlson giving that famous speech at CPAC where he says, you know, the right needs a New York Times and I'm going to build. And so he goes and builds a Daily Caller, which whatever else you want to say about it is not a New York Times <laughs> um, or Fox News, where Sean Hannity, who is not a journalist in any form or fashion, is the most popular host. And I wonder if some of this doesn't at least help explain it in the sense that. On in the mainstream media and uh, on on the left, which is much more woven into the mainstream media ecosystem, I think there is a there's a an audience that is pretty open to being challenged and pretty open to um, revision. Yes, and so you end up having this connection to again the the kind of meta ideas like there's this like search for knowledge and like things can be wrong and that's okay and you'll go and correct them and and yeah. like, you know you have corrections right. and corrections make you look better and and on the right i think that there has been a little bit more of a preference for a form of media that is about mobilization and and getting people to fall in line right and i i think that part of that and the case that that i make here is that the there is a symbiosis between the aesthetics of outrage and the psychology of conservatism, especially social and cultural conservatism, which is threat-oriented and is engaging in sort of surveillance chronically. Now, I say that because when you look at the tenor of those popular analysis shows on Fox, you can understand how that works very, very well among especially the base for whom issues related to threat and resentment and, you know, whether it be talk about it in terms of economy or race, those things loom large. And they're always in that state of monitoring. So when if you're in that state of monitoring and these hosts tell you, here is the here is the target, here is the threat, here is the imminent situation that we need to be aware of, and here is the solution. And the solution is vote for this guy, which they are literally doing actively electioneering for Trump. That, to me, is it makes sense that it has moved in that direction because it is so successful for the right. You know, when, when you're talking about the quality journalism and, you know, why what, what they need really is a conservative New York Times. If you look at at the role that Buckley played on the right, when you look at the National Review as really the the gatekeeper 
for American conservatism for decades, um, they they had it, right? They had their agenda setter. They had their thoughtful, intellectual, conservative space. And I think it's Charlie Sykes who, who talks about it as um, the problem now is that the National Review has lost its agenda setting power in a sense to this what he calls the the crackpots right that the crackpots are really loud and they don't care about the national review or the weekly standard but let me complicate that cuz i think that's actually a little too friendly to buckley um or maybe i shouldn't say too friendly to buckley but the 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 place where i think there's something interesting here i wish i had described it the way you just did um particularly on the conservative media side i think that the conservative media is very threat oriented and particularly demographically threat-oriented. Conservative media, the rise of Fox News, I mean, these things are very much about foreigners and internally non-white people posing a threat. Or, or um, you know, also you, you see this increasingly now on gender and college campuses. I mean, the threat is about the community and the community is an ethno-nationalist community. And if that turns out to be the, the, the chord you need to keep playing, you're going to end up moving in a certain direction. That said, so why did Buckley work? I mean, Buckley was an anti-communist, first and foremost. Fusionism was an anti-communist approach to, to conservative media. And so there was an ability to, to do things within the context of anti-communism that, that worked. Now, he was able to, to you know, police the boundaries of that. And so my point is not that Buckley did not at times play a very powerful role trying to eject crackpots, although I do want to know, not really eject racists from the conservative coalition. He did. And well, the thing with yeah. the, John, the Birchers yeah. is a, is a definitely an um, impressive moment in his career. But I do think there's a little bit more of a straight line here. I mean, the thing to me that's always interesting, there's this demand side too. And I think one of the really telling moments, one of the most important moments in politics, but certainly in conservative media in the past couple of years, was the debate, the first Republican debate, where Fox News has been inflating the Trump balloon and inflating the Trump balloon and having him do weekly call-ins and he's on all the shows and Roger Ailes is promoting him. He's just like good TV, that guy. And then clearly somebody has decided like this has gone too far. So now they've got at the debate Chris Wallace and Brett Baer and Megyn Kelly who are their more legitimate news hosts. And a decision is obviously made to go right at Trump, to like deflate this thing. And they go to war with Trump and Trump does exactly what you would expect him to do and sort of overreacts. And then, you know, it is telling Megyn Kelly she had blood coming out of her wherever and goes through this whole thing. And there's like a war between Fox and Trump and Fox loses. A couple of days later, um, Roger Ailes kind of bends the knee to Trump and Fox never really covers Trump critically ever again. And what was interesting to me is that you know, Fox understood its base better than anybody else did for a while. And then Trump understood the base better than anyone else did for a while. And that at every point in this, the thing that is like the North Star is how afraid of you of the outsiders, right? Like Buckley is building an anti-communist base. Like Fox is building a sort of like anti-social change base. Even Megyn Kelly, right? You know, she's like all about hyping the new Black Panthers before she becomes a, you know, a, a, a more legitimate face of Fox. And then she ends up fighting with Donald Trump, who's, you know, about um, <laughs> like saying terrible things about immigrants and building a wall. And a year later, she's out at Fox. And it's like that, to me, the soil there is you constantly have to be the one who is doing the most to hype the threat. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, one thing that I have found fascinating to watch, and I, I just wish I could be a fly on the wall, you know, somewhere in their headquarters, just the the tension that seems to 
arise between, you know, Chris Wallace or Brett Baer and Shep Smith and these other analysis shows, which are actively engaging in something that these news people cannot pretend they're not doing. They just can't. Right. When when Mayor Pete was on with Chris Wallace and he literally called out Sean Hannity, I think Tucker Carlson, maybe Laura Ingram for, you know, spewing sort of hateful talk about immigration. That was an interesting moment because Chris Wallace did not say, whoa, hold on there, mister. Hold on, because you have to imagine that it's hard to do what Chris Wallace is doing at Fox. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. But now let me ask you the flip of this, right? If it is a case that conservatives are more threat oriented, they're more oriented towards authority, then why is it that they're not worried about climate change where liberals are writing these apocalyptic tracks and, you know, suggesting that the the entire economy needs to be decarbonized? I feel like a kind of straightforward view of the psychology here would say that conservatives should like listen to the scientists and listen to the um, you know, other authorities on this subject, and they should be freaking out. That is a great question. I've had that same conundrum myself, but I, my, I think it comes down to a couple things. One, I think um, in the United States, the the sort of ties between conservatism and evangelicalism, Christianity, make this a very challenging thing to articulate as an existential crisis, right? Um, especially when you think about the notion from from the Christian perspective that human beings are are shepherds, but that that the earth is there for us to use in order to aid in our own survival. And just the notion that, you know, if you are a faithful person, there is a more wonderful, bountiful place awaiting you. I think that that makes it complicated. Um, I also think that the the sort of systematic erosion of faith and trust in higher education and scientific inquiry has allowed some on the right to just discredit from the jump anything that comes out of of the scientific community in that way. I mean, that to me is one of the the great questions here, which is, if you were to ask me what fundamentally separates the the right and the left right now, it isn't the people exactly. I, I can say as somebody who gets a lot of emails from like conservatives and liberals that if you read the emails, they're not always that different. And you know, in labs, you can get people to do some different things, but liberals will self-deceive at the same rates more or less as conservatives. What seems to me to be quite different though is that liberals are quite tied to academia and mainstream journalism, which are institutions that have many more liberals in them than conservatives. I think that that criticism or at least observation is true, but nevertheless are also institutions that consider themselves and their business model and the reputational model to be transpartisan. And they take a certain delight. I mean, the New York Times wants to be seen criticizing and holding to account the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, academia does not want to be understood as liberal, even, even if people do see it that way. Um, and I wonder about whether or not it was con- like historically contingent, whether or not it could have gone another way, there's kind of been this crowbarring away of the conservative movement and, and these institutions because not being tied to them seems like a real – like those are real breaks. Um, you know, your movement might have its own incentives, but because they have 
cross-pressuring incentives, if you're tied to them and you're concerned about criticism from them, it, it puts a it puts a stop on what you can do. I think, like for instance, there's a lot less criticism of GMOs in left of center media than you might expect because a lot of left of center media cares what scientists think. Um, whereas climate change denial took over conservatives and it took over a lot of like thoughtful, you know, quote unquote conservatives like George Will because they don't really care what the scientists think. Um, and that's been a really that's been a really toxic trend. But I wonder if it had to happen, if there's something in the coalitions that made it that way, or just, you know, it's just how things worked out. So uh, I feel like I'm a bit of a psychological determinist here, which is so annoying, but I'm going to beat that drum for a second. I, I do think that there's something about the kinds of people that um, have the, not only the psychological traits, but even the sort of physiology that would drive them to have an epistemological orientation to the world that's about asking questions, not answering questions, asking questions. And those kinds of people, generally speaking, would tend to be more on the left than the right. And those orientations to the world are what would drive people to enter the realms of both journalism and science, right, or higher ed. So, yeah, you end up with this weird imbalance which I don't necessarily think is hugely problematic at first until you think about the the moment of polarization that we're in right now. And you think about the, the, the fact that, OK, if it is perceived that people who work in science and people who work in higher ed and people who work in journalism are progressive liberals who cannot be objective or neutral in their presentation or analysis of some subject, well, then how much credibility is the outcome of their work, is the product of their work going to have? And that's where I see we're in crisis right now because of that undermining of the credibility of higher ed and science. I think that's right. Um, but the other thing that is part of that, and this is a story I've been thinking about and telling a bit in my book, is that among everything else that is sorted in American politics in the past 50 or 60 years, you know, where the parties have come to, to be more sorted by race and ideology and religiosity and geography, they've also just sorted more by psychology. And so, you know, something that um, just was true was that back when the Democratic Party was full of, I will use the term here, psychologically authoritarian Southern white Dixiecrats, um, it wasn't so obvious if you were a you know somebody who was more open to experience and and felt good about change, which party you should always be in. But but as everything sorted, you had there's a lot of evidence you've had a very sharp psychological sort too. In in Hetherington and Weiler's book, they show that in the early 90s even you didn't have much of a difference in the presidential election across these psychological dimensions. Whereas now it's like the difference is unbelievably large, and I wonder how much. You just end up in a, a path dependence here, which is as these things become more different, as you say, then the same kinds of people are more aligned in their parties. So, you know, if you if you want to argue that the same kinds of people have always gone in to higher ed and have always gone into media, it's just now those kinds of people are more likely to be liberal uh, and Democrats than they were before. Um, you would have had more, you know, sort of northern liberal Republicans, say, in the media. Um and then when that happens, you know, conservatives understandably look at these institutions, see they are totally different from them in identity, 
and reject them. Mm-hmm. And so like this, is, say, an effect this of is not for me. This is not a place for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, I also want to add to this just because it hasn't been touched on yet in our conversation. The role played by um, media technologies and media fragmentation, right? Because, and I'm not going to talk about it from the standpoint that everyone talks about it from, which is that like, okay, so now there's all these little tiny echo chambers and we can all go in these echo chambers and separate from each other. That's that's been talked about to death. What I want to address, though, is that the deliberate construction of these places was done using psychographics by advertisers working with media executives to cultivate spaces to identify homogenous types of people whose purchasing habits would be predictable. So when you think about the that sort of like, you know, 80s, 90s experimentation with different kinds of programming, it shouldn't be that shocking that we end up not just with these politically divergent news shows, right? Which, by the way, we didn't at first, right? MSNBC didn't become a response to Fox until it had used up its other, I don't know, ideas. And that wasn't until post-2000 that it became a real response to Fox News. But when I'm talking actually about everything from HGTV to Spike TV to even Comedy Central, where you're talking about creating spaces for certain groups of people based on psychographics. And to the extent that psychology informs how we think about the world, which in turn informs our politics, we should assume that there's going to be this splintering politically as a result of this not just Fox, MSNBC, but all of these these cultivated little pockets of mediated culture. So this is a story that I've been tracking a bit in, in the book I'm writing. And I, I think it's a pretty interesting sort of feedback loop. So like the story in its broad shape, as I tell it, is that you have the rise of choice-based media, which you didn't have 40 or 50 years ago. So now, you know, you have cable, you have the internet, you have the ability to choose whatever you want, whenever you want. So you can have, you know, you can watch the HGTV or Comedy Central, or you could be into politics. And so the thing that does, and we have evidence on this, is that it splits political consumption by interested and uninterested. So now fewer people who are not that interested in politics end up watching it just because it's on. And But there's more um, intense, constant um, attachment to it among the people who are really into politics. And right, when, so the Marcus Pryor argument. That's the Marcus right? Pryor work. And so then you get... Um, um, along the same period of time, you're having the this polarization of political identity. And I do think identity is really an important concept here. But the two political coalitions are, are being built around quite different political identities and demographies. And so now you have media outlets that are, in order to win in a competitive market, they have to be more appealing to people who are connecting through these political identities. And so the media outlets themselves become more polarized. But then as they become more polarized, as they're serving, you know, more more of this content to to the side that they're trying to appeal more to, the the people themselves, we become more polarized. And so there's this funny like back and forth, more political, more polarized political identities mean more polarized media. More polarized media means further polarizing political identities. And it just kind of keeps ping-ponging back and forth in a way that I don't think anybody really intended for it to right at the beginning. 
No. And it's not even that the media is wrong um, or it, it's not like, look, like I'm part of this media and I've seen it both in more ideological outlets and, you know, in more opinionated outlets. But if you look at the Washington Post or the New York Times and the way they write their stories and their headlines versus 15 or 20 years ago, you know, even them um, who, you know, still kind of try to hold to a more straightforward approach to journalism, it's a lot clearer who those who who their audience is, maybe the way I would put that. Yeah, interestingly, I would say, you know, we could, where we talk about this same kind of dynamic a lot is in polarization through social media and how those algorithms of liking and responding and reacting, that 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 feedback loop has a very observable effect on you know, the things that make you emotionally either really excited or really angry, that then goes back and then upweights that content in the algorithm. So we can see that and we understand kind of like how that could happen. But I think that we've been less good at recognizing what I would say is a slower version of that same dynamic in the context of, you know, cable news and more legacy outlets. I think you're right. Yeah, I I think that I think that to a first approximation, the media matters more than social media. Yes. I don't, I, I think it may not always be true, but I, I think so far it is true. And I mean, oftentimes I think the way social media ends up mattering is it drives the media. So I think social media is very driven, I'm sorry, I think mainstream media is very driven in its assignment choice by social media. And certainly Donald Trump used his Twitter feed to set the agenda of like every cable news channel and newspaper in the country for a while. And so it still is a case that media itself matters more. But yeah. I would say too, yeah, and, and even even to the to the extent where um you know, in political communication circles, everyone, of course, is like, God, they want to understand social media effects. And and um, my my friend Lance Holbert, who's at Temple, he published this piece about how, guess what, folks? Guess where most people get their news still? It's TV. OK, so for, so for most people, it's still 1989. OK, so you can talk about these dynamics, but just recognize that there's still this this large swath of the country that is engaging in a, in a way that, you know, was where we were at like 10 years ago in terms of dissemination. Oh, yeah. Or even more. I mean, uh, this is a point I always try yeah. to make, but there's no doubt that Trump is like the first Twitter president. But if you look at who is on Twitter, if only the age groups on Twitter voted or if the, the electorate looked like the age groups on Twitter, Trump loses by like a thousand percentage points. <laughs> Whatever he's doing through Twitter is not working. Um, like he wins because he wins older Americans by such a large margin and they're not the ones on Twitter. So whatever he's doing on Twitter, it is affecting them and it is reaching them. But I think primarily the way it's reaching them is through mainstream media channels. It's through that are Fox paying and attention Friends. To Twitter. Yeah, through Fox and Friends is <laughs> a great example Fox of that. Fox and Friends, Yeah. But where does this stuff leave you? Like if you if you believe there are these different psychologies happening and they're sorting even more, I mean, where does it leave you? What does it mean? Yeah. So the way that I've been thinking about why this matters and how it matters is, I think, in in considering, well, first of all, especially under a Trump presidency, I've been increasingly aware of these moments of flashes of of anger that come from our predominantly liberal satirists, where it seems like they abandon humor altogether and they're just they're just mad. Right. So there's the the moment, of course, where Samantha B referred to Ivanka Trump as a see you next Tuesday. And there was not a lot of humor in that. It was um, it was indignation. 
And I guess one of the things as somebody who is progressive and I and I see this sort of it's not it's not huge. It's not all the time. But you see these glimpses. I guess I would just remind these sort of liberal satirists that the power of satire, especially for the left, comes from the way in which it interacts with a liberal psychology, which is engaging our minds, getting us to come to conclusions on our own, solve the riddle, engage in a state of play, encouraging us to think about things that we haven't thought about, perhaps in new ways, putting it on the top of our agenda, getting us to learn more about it. It's not necessarily great at mobilizing us. I will tell you that satire is not a great mobilizer. Outrage is. Satire's not. But I would say that if you are actively targeting anger, I think that that just seems to be at odds with the dominant epistemology of the left. I just that just doesn't seem quite. I don't know. It doesn't seem smart to me. Let me try another another possible takeaway on you. It's something that is an incredibly ubiquitous form of political commentary, both in the media and pundits, but also from political uh, professionals, is they're doing this thing and it's working, so we should do it too. Right. There's this constant, right. you know, they have yes. Rush Limbaugh yes. or they have Jon Stewart, but also they have Donald Trump or they don't play by the rules or whatever it might be. There is this constant looking often at a distorted version of the other side, but at the other side and then saying we have to we have to take that tactic. And something that I think is a, a real lesson of, of this literature is that it's not going to work. That the two sides it's have different tactics, they have different products, they have different media and political figures because they are somewhat psychologically different. Like you have to figure out how to move your side or convert more people over to your side. But, you know, there's great um, research from Chris Federico and others in their book Open versus Closed that if you're looking at the most engaged people, like the people who run for office and who volunteer for people in office and are consuming all this media, they're the most different psychologically. Like they're the most different on these open and closed measures. Yes. And so the idea that you can ape the other side um, in your political organizing, it's just not going to work because you're dealing with such psychologically different coalitions. And I and again, I don't just think that it's about the audiences for them, because we can talk about target audience all day and how you got to know your audience. Duh. Right. But I think it's also about assuming that the people who are really passionate about creating this content for their side also do have these, this political ideology and the accompanying psychological traits. They're really not going to be good at making it. They're not going to speak the language in a natural way that allows them to be necessarily successful at creating that thing. Yeah, I think that's, I I certainly think that's right. The other thing that is interesting here, which we haven't really spoken about, but is when you look at a lot of the psychological data, it is is very sorted among white people. But if you're looking at non-whites, it's not all that sorted at all. I mean, African-Americans are quite, uh, I mean, like everybody else, are diverse on the, uh, in, in the psychological spectrum, but a lot of them are much more traditionalist. A lot of them will score higher on these fixed and fluid, uh, I'm sorry, on these fixed scales. 
And they're just in the Democratic Party because the Republican Party, they, they feel so rejected by or discriminated against by yes. um, or angry at the Republican Party. And so I do think something interesting that is a difference between the coalitions is that we can sometimes talk about them as, you know, Democrats are this kind of diverse non-white coalition that's sorted by by having a lot of like minorities in it and Republicans are sorted by having a lot of white people in it. And it's the same, right? It's like one's non-white and you're one's diverse and one's less diverse. But being a coalition that is internally unsorted is quite different than being a coalition that is internally quite sorted. And I do wonder if that's why you don't end up among Democrats having a broad variety of media and, and more, I think, in general, like different kinds of politicians. Because to rise up in on that side, you need to be able to win over more different kinds of people. You have to kind of go broad, where on the right, you're able to go deep. Yeah. And I my, my understanding is that when you're looking within these sort of racial categories, you do have variance in these psychological and physiological traits, yes, right? Absolutely. So, but the so right. So the fact that you have, you know, Democrats tend to then bring in people of color and Latinx individuals, and then you have such variation within those communities. What you're going to have is not just diversity in terms of racial and ethnic categories and culture. You're also going to have diversity in terms of like. The, the fundamental motivations that drive us, which you will not find as much on the right. So it kind of makes sense to me when, when you start thinking, when I think about this in terms of statistical models, I think about the fact that conservatives tend to behave in ways that are predictable, in ways that we don't find as much with liberals or with Democrats. And I think in part... What do you mean by that? I mean, so... When if you're looking at I'm just thinking about this in terms of, you know, separating out. So if I look at to what extent certain traits predict consumption of certain shows, it works really well when you're looking at conservatives. But I feel like there's a lot more error in the models that look that are looking at liberals or Democrats because they it is such a mixed group in terms of the psychological traits that are driving these processes. It's not as homogenous. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? 
<clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. One other thing that this implies to me is if you believe in a politics of persuasion, not sure you should, but I'm not sure what other alternative any of us have. If you believe in a politics of persuasion, it's worth thinking about are you designing your persuasive vehicles to persuade yourself or to persuade the people you're trying to persuade? And I think that's like a hard thing. I think it's particularly hard on social media where we kind of pretend we're making arguments, but actually we're, we're looking for applause. But in general, I'd be curious for your reflections on, you know, if you're in media or you're, um, you know, in, in politics, what does this imply about persuasion? Is is what are what are the lessons for trying to persuade someone who does not share your psychology? And what are the blind spots you have? Because obviously you do. Well, I mean, this sounds so simple, but what would be so wrong about engaging in some kind of collaboration to have other voices at the table in the room when you are trying to do some kind of outreach or engagement, right? Assuming that there are individuals that are perhaps more in the center that can speak the language of both sides, um, that that's going to allow you to consider things that you would have, con you would not have considered otherwise. I don't think that there's a a fixed way of saying this is the way you need to talk to the left and this is the way you need to talk to the right. I also think that that will change over time um, and based on context. But what it does tell you is that if you're going to be smart about how best to engage someone from a particular side, you would be super smart to have other people with those shared life experiences to be able to talk to, to help you inform that. This is why I, I know that on my Twitter feed, I get it. All, all, you know, my very left Twitter feed hates the fact that the New York Times has yet another article trying to understand the Trump voter from Ohio. You know, it's like, we don't need another one of these articles. Well, that alone is a warning sign to me because that understanding is what's going to get you where you need to be to have a conversation. Um, so, so saying, I don't, we know what they think. We know they still like Trump. We know they're going to vote for him no matter what. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's between the lines that you got to look carefully for what are those internal motivations? What are their sort of, what is making them tick? And what's on their mind? I think it's, a, I think those kinds of deep dives are still super important. I think that's a good place to, to come to close. So let me ask you our, our, what's always our final question here, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? The first one is the book that really was game-changing when it came out for political science. And it's Murray Edelman's Constructing the Political Spectacle from 1988. And what Edelman did in this book is he directly took on head on the argument that political scientists have been making for years and still make that the public is responding to actual, real events, issues, crises, and people. He basically critiques that positivist approach to an understanding of the world, saying that all of these things are socially constructed, right? But that wasn't new. What was new, though, was that he was saying there is no ability for any member of the public to engage with any political issue, event, crisis, or person outside of 
how those things are constructed and the fact that they're actively, deliberately constructed, not just through the sort of practices and routines of journalists and newsrooms, but also deliberately and strategically through the work of, um, you know, spin doctors and and campaign operatives, etc. And what makes that book relevant to my own work is that when he talks about the political spectacle, which is how he calls it, he talks about antidotes to that. Like, how can we remedy this? And in his final chapter, he addresses art as a possible antidote to the political spectacle, because art, he argues, relies on language that is fundamentally different from the language of politics, because art is not didactic. Art does not assume a knowable reality. Art is all about moral relativism and so is not beholden to any of these entities, any of these power brokers. Um, and so in that way, it's liberating. And so that that kind of helped me start thinking, especially about comedy and satire as forms of artistic expression that can help to counter dominant political narratives. So that's one. Number two. The Outrage Industry, which is the book that my book I couldn't have written without this book. So this is the book that um, Jeff Berry and Sarah Soberai from Tufts, um, the, a political scientist and sociologist, worked together. And they put this out in 2014 as a, a glimpse into what actually makes this ecosystem tick. And so, again, the, these are this is a genre that they characterize as existing on both the left and the right. They do a content analysis where they they articulate the defining characteristics of outrage. They content analyze all the individual programs to understand to what extent the programs engage in these things. They talk about what are the media regulation and technological developments that allowed, encouraged, and made it possible for outrage to arise and thrive in the late 90s into the 2000s. Um, it's just a great, it's just a great project. Number three. So when I came up my book, I I am an expert on political satire, and I'm not an expert on conservative media. So I really needed to really brush up, especially on the historical components of, like, where did this landscape come from? It, was it just that there was Rush Limbaugh and nothing before that? And, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if you've talked about this book before on your podcast, but Nicole Hemmer's book, Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, it blew my mind because, you know, she documents these early players in talk radio that came sort of in the Midwest and the South, Clarence Mannion and Dan Smoot. And these, they, really the, the tone, the fire and brimstone tone of these anti-communist, anti-integration, oftentimes former government officials that hosted these shows. And she talks about how that, even though they had small audiences, they these pockets, they were mighty, right? So they had these, these followers, and that continued through the late 1950s into the 1960s and 70s. And what really blew my mind was that I was also at the same time thinking about the origins of American satire. And at the very same moment as these conservative early talk radio hosts are railing against the United States being in the United Nations and they're criticizing Chief Justice Earl Warren. It's the same moment that Dick Gregory, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, that these guys are in San Francisco 
engaging in really experimental, largely conversational in tone, humorous, satirical takes on religion and, and, and sexuality and politics. And for me, those were two microcosms that couldn't be more different. And that really started this deep dive into why are they so different? Why do they why do they attack these things so differently? And why do they why is one of them in like smoky strip clubs? <laughs> right. Yeah. So so I very much appreciated her her work on this. Dana Young, thank you very much. Ezra Klein, thank you. Thank you to Dana for being here. Um, I have a question for you, actually, that I was thinking about doing this podcast. If you're either on the left or the right. I'd be curious what media you consume that you disagree with and that you like. I'm not asking you what media you consume that you disagree with and you dislike, right? I, I know some people will hate watch things or read, you know, some pundit to get pissed off. But I'm asking you, what what do you read or listen to or watch regularly that it doesn't agree with you, but but you're able to absorb? It is aesthetically, to some of the conversation we were having here in this podcast, it is aesthetically congenial enough to you that you're able to get past a difference in opinion to absorb it anyway. I always think this is it. I'm always curious of, of who is doing this well um, and, and and what you think of them. So you can email me that at EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Again, at EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.